Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is It Legal 2? A special production of the Missouri Bar, a regular look at the legal system and you. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. You happily, legally married, Farah? I am. We just recently celebrated eight years, and you were even a witness to our marriage, I, I was believe. a witness to that. It was in the House Lounge, and a Supreme Court judge married you. That's correct. That's uh, not your normal wedding. <laughs> and Bob, I know I have met your lovely bride. How many years are you two celebrating now? I have 51 grateful years. Wow. And... Uh, so far, she's tolerated far more than I have, and uh, <laughs> I'm still in the same house. But you know, I, I was gone for most of that time covering things at the Capitol, so I didn't get to spend 24 hours at home, and that may have saved the marriage for all well, this time. Well, I'm glad you have hobbies now. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the month of February, and it's it's the month of Valentine's and uh, the month of love, I guess. And so we're going to talk a little bit about love and marriage. They go together like a horse and carriage. That's right. Love and marriage, love and marriage. Except sometimes the carriage breaks down or sometimes the horse bolts. And there are legal problems when that kind of thing happens. So let's explore the legal points of marriage today. It's an institution. I guess a lot of people think you have to get married in a church. But actually, isn't marriage a contract? It is in many ways. And so we have two guests today mm-hmm. to help walk us through the ins and outs of the contractual side of marriage and maybe some of the things that you should consider before getting married. And then also in the event that buggy does break down or the horse runs away, that you take the proper steps to have a divorce. So joining us today, we have two Missouri lawyers who expressly practice law in this area. Um, The first is Kirk Stange, and he founded the Stange Law Firm in 2007 with his wife, Paula. Their firm is based in Clayton, and they have offices throughout the state. Kirk helps clients with his years of experience in family law, as well as serving as a trained mediator, a collaborative attorney, and a guardian ad litem. He also routinely educates other lawyers in the state of Missouri when it comes to continuing education in family law matters. We also have Helen Wade of Harper Evans Wade and Nettemeyer in Columbia, and she focuses her practice on domestic cases, including divorce, paternity, child support, and custody. And Helen was admitted to the Missouri Bar back in 2004, and she has committed herself and her career to helping clients who have domestic problems. So we're fortunate to have both of them join us today to walk us through um, the highs and lows of the contractual side of love. For many years, there have been various standards set in law and in custom about who can marry who or who should not marry who. And uh, even in recent years, we've had some legal changes about who can marry somebody else. So let's talk a little bit about that. Kirk, have you experienced very many things in your practice in which people who at one time couldn't get married now can? You know, I mean, obviously, the, in terms of the changes in like same-sex marriage, maybe you're referencing, I mean, mm-hmm. in some ways, it's still relative, relatively new. And so in terms of, for my practice in divorce and family law context, I mean, we've had some same-sex divorces. Um, but not not gigantic numbers at this point, and certainly fewer than than in comparison to uh, traditional marriages where, where where it's ended in divorce. And that just might be in part because a lot of these marriages are new, and so maybe as the years go on and the decades go on, there might be sort of a big increase in same sex divorce. But uh, same comparison, it's still relatively fewer in numbers, at least in, in terms of what I'm seeing at my firm. Helen, have you seen any, any changes uh, in terms of the legal standing of who can get married and what a marriage is uh, in, in your experience as a lawyer? Yes, I've, you know, we've certainly seen some changes in the law, changes in the treatment of who the law will recognize as being a married couple. I do agree with Kirk. I mean, I, I think I've seen an increase in the number of people who are interested in the manner in which a court might respond to a dissolution of a same-sex marriage. Um, we've had more interest in custody questions when same-sex couples have children but don't get married. I think that may be because those relationships have been um, in existence for longer and perhaps have had some time to break down, whereas the marriages are somewhat newer and uh, are either lasting or are just not at a point where they are seeking legal advice, perhaps. I have heard some interesting commentary that the recognition of same-sex marriage has given these couples much more access 
to the legal system and to the justice system than was previously afforded, which was a, sort of a way of thinking about this that I hadn't particularly approached before. But I think we'll see lots of changes to come as well as the application of these laws unfold and are being interpreted by our courts. So I know that I was a bit older when I first got married. And I believe that tends to be a trend now where people are waiting longer and longer to get married, maybe even being in relationships for years before they decide to officially tie the knot. Is that something that you're seeing in your practice? And does that benefit a relationship long term and kind of help eyes be open going into that marriage contract? Or um, do you see sort of the same rate of problems come through the door? I see marriages of, you know, extremely long duration end. And likewise, I see marriages of extremely short duration end. I think that the trend starts to emerge a bit more when you are looking at second and third marriages in terms of their likelihood of success. I'm not sure that a long-term relationship before the marriage is entered into necessarily has a significant impact upon the likelihood of them walking through my door. I don't know what you see, Kirk. What do you see? You know, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I think the other interesting phenomenon, though, in terms of what I've seen is really a rise in paternity cases. I mean, a lot of people decide yes. ultimately to live together. Uh, they have kids together because divorce rates have been high. A lot of individuals sort of jaded. and They think, ah, we'll just live together. We'll have kids and we won't get married. And what a lot of individuals don't realize is that when they split up, it's very similar to divorce in that it's a paternity case where parties end up litigating custody and support related issues. And sort of ironically, they end up in the same family law court that they were seeking to avoid in some ways by not getting married in the first place. And so at least in my firm, by far, the second most common type of case next to divorce are these paternity cases, which are the split ups between the unmarried folks who had kids. And, and, and if you look at rates throughout the country, it's four out of 10 kids born out of wedlocks. So I think that trend is only going to continue. So I know that you mentioned you have this relationship, you're living together, you're creating a family together. I know that there's this idea of common law marriage that is legal in some states. Is that something that exists here? And if not, if you've lived together and been in this relationship for a really long time, what does that count for? Do you get any benefits when you separate or is there anything to protect you or make you more vulnerable in that situation? So Missouri doesn't have a common law marriage statute, but that raises questions of recognition of marriages that are entered into or sanctioned by virtue of a common law marriage statute in other states. You know, when you have a relationship of longstanding duration, you tend to just out of either necessity or habit start to accumulate uh, property together. You start to, you know, you buy a house and it's in both of your names. You buy, you know, vehicles together, perhaps. So there are, I suppose, protections by virtue of co-ownership of property that do arise out of a more long-standing relationship. But in terms of obligations of future support to one another, um, and I'm referring here to questions of alimony or maintenance, Absent the marriage contract being entered into a, in a way in which our laws recognize it, that obligation cannot be imposed. Um, and so the length of that relationship in that regard really doesn't have much significance in the eyes of the law. Yeah, a couple other things people can think about doing in these situations but oftentimes don't don't really consider. I mean, one, cohabitation agreements, individuals that are going to live yep. uh, together and they, and they know they're not going to get married. Oftentimes, they can alleviate a lot of the, the property disputes on the back end by having a cohabitation agreement, which in some ways is very similar and different, but similar to a prenuptial agreement where you're agreeing in advance what's going to happen with property and debt. Uh, some folks end up filing partition actions too. So if they yep. jo jointly own a house or they jointly own cars, or I mean, you name it, when they split up, oftentimes they have to go to court and through a partition action, they have to ask the court to, uh, to deal with these issues. And so that's where, look, I think in terms of getting married or not getting married, that's a complicated question. 
for people and people have to make the right decision for them and their relationship. But one of the ironic pieces, again, is I think from a legal standpoint, people think, well, we won't get married and we, that way we, we can avoid court and legal complexities. But these individuals, again, oftentimes end up, end up in court on petition actions where they end up litigating paternity disputes as to custody. And so when you're in a relationship, you own property together, you have kids together, where you're, whether you're married or not, it's hard to keep the courts completely out of it. Are there rights that a couple can gain by getting married that they don't have by being unmarried? Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Well, certainly, I mean, I think Helen hit the one, which is the right to, mm -hmm. uh, to seek spousal support by getting married. The court, you know, then in a divorce proceeding or legal separation proceeding has the ability to order spousal support. So that that is certainly there. And as, as Helen had indicated, when individuals aren't married, uh, you can't get that. Some states refer to it as palimony, and it's not recognized in Missouri. So that would be um, one significant key feature. I also think in terms of custody and in terms of dads, you know, when a baby's born during marriage, there's presumption that that, that father or the, the husband is the father of the child, which then results in rights you know, basically being there. And then if the marriage is dissolved, then the court issues a parenting plan. For a lot of unmarried dads out there, that you know, they're on the birth certificate. And I think that uh, that's going to completely protect them. And obviously being on the birth certificate is a good thing for a dad who wants custody rights. But unmarried dads end up having to go to court on a paternity case and, and getting a custody order because a birth certificate, right, it doesn't have a calendar on. It doesn't indicate what days of the week they're going to get to see their child. And it doesn't indicate whether they're a joint decision maker or not. And so unmarried dads, I think, uh, still face uh, some challenges if they want to be involved. And, and they certainly, well, it's not simple or easy. They have less challenges if they're, if they're married at the time the kids are born. Do, do unmarried dads have to have their name on the birth certificate under Missouri law? I mean, they don't have to have it. I mean, obviously, when, you know, when a baby's born and there's an acknowledgement of paternity and oftentimes that, you know, that's executed and the dad's put on there. But there's certainly cases where the dad isn't. And there's certainly times, I think, if you do enough family law, you'll, you'll see instances where an individual is listed as the biological dad on the birth certificate. But then when a paternity test is later done, right, the father's not what everybody thought it was. So, right. and, and that, I mean, that just happens. I mean, it is, it is like some of these TV shows you see and, and there've been plenty of instances. I've had clients come in and, you know, they, they've been raising a child 10 years or more. They think the child is theirs and it turns out it isn't. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, when you get married, you do in some sense acquire sort of these unwitting rights, you know, you, you and your spouse begin to acquire interest in each other's assets regardless of whether or not your name is affiliated with that asset. Whereas if you aren't married, it is more difficult to show any kind of an interest in an asset upon which your name is not listed or otherwise attached. In addition, marriage does allow for additional benefits that may be associated with, you know, insurance coverages, uh, the right to be, um, you know, granted an interest in somebody's pension, you know, your input into the manner in which those rights may be compromised or waived becomes greater once that marriage has been established. You know, that's not, certainly not to say that uh, the marriage is the only way to establish those rights, but this is a natural recognition of the, I suppose, intended permanency of the relationship that sort of flows over into other areas of people's lives. I seem to recall that there are questions about healthcare information among married couples. Uh, if uh, if I have a girlfriend and she goes into the hospital, are there limits on what kind of information I can find out about how she's doing, or what are my rights in terms of somebody like that who's just been somebody I've been living with for many years? Do I have any rights to uh, to even visit that person in the hospital if I'm not a relative, if I'm not a specific relative? Obviously, health records and stuff like that's going to be protected under under HIPAA. So mm -hmm. nobody's got right. a right to see the the health records of somebody that they're you know, in a relationship with, or maybe living with, or something like that. And certainly, any individual, whether married or not, probably has the ability to not have somebody come in a hospital room or something like that see them. But but right, I mean, certainly access to records and access to talking to doctors or anything like that. Right. I mean, you don't have an inherent right to do that. Now, some folks sign power of attorneys. You can do durable power of attorneys or something like that, which can give that authority. But in the absence of that, I mean, not not really. I mean, there's not an inherent right. 
And so there's a chance that if you're not married, you might have a situation where you're unable or not even allowed the opportunity to help make a healthcare decision for that person that you love and have been in a long-term relationship with, unless it's already expressly, like you said, it through a durable power of attorney or other legal document granting that. Is well, that that's totally right? true. Right. That's totally true. Yes. There would have to be some other explicit instruction by the, the patient upon which medical staff could rely in order to allow somebody who isn't a partner in marriage to participate in those kinds of decisions. The idea of getting married, it seems so easy and so simple. I mean, growing up and even as I got older, it was like, well, how do you get married? Well, you just get on to the courthouse and if you want to, you can coordinate with your pastor or whatever your religious affiliation is and have that type of ceremony as well. But Can you walk us through, for those who haven't been married or maybe thinking about it, what are the actual technical steps to getting married? And if there's not many, what else do you think that they should be considering before they do make that trip to the courthouse? They've got to have a ceremony and then a marriage license has to be requested and completed. I mean, I mean, from a from a technical sense, in terms of getting married, in terms of the decision, in terms of whether to get married, obviously that's a big that's a big decision, and it's hard as a lawyer to uh, to make that for any individual. Or, but obviously, it's a big decision. It's a it's a one that people need to think through thoroughly. And I would say it's the same thing for folks who you know have kids outside of wedlock too. I mean, you've got to think about that. I mean, these are lifelong kind of decisions, and uh, obviously. I think it's important for individuals to, to think about it long and hard because these, these are definitely decisions that will affect individuals the rest of their life. Yeah, it, I, mean, I think people usually, you know, the traditional uh, sort of life plan tends to involve getting married um, when you are fairly young, which when you're younger, uh, you don't necessarily appreciate the extensive nature of a marriage contract. Um, it's, it's a very happy time for many people. Family members are excited about it, but it is a very, it has many, many significant elements that I think very few people really think about before walking down the aisle, so to speak. Many of us practitioners, I've been known to say, if I were queen, everybody would have a prenup. Um, (laughs) But those are questions that are difficult to discuss and difficult to answer when you are in the stage of getting married and planning your life together. It's difficult to talk about. Well, what if this doesn't work out? What if things don't go the way that that we dream that they might? So I think probably the the best advice somebody who's sitting in, in this chair would give is to really give it some thought and be realistic about the idea that things don't always go the way that you plan. In fact, they more often than not, they don't go the way that you plan. Helen, you mentioned a prenup and that if you could, you would prefer that every couple have one before they get married. Can you tell us um, what a prenup stands for? It's a term that we hear so often in today's society, but I think not all of us really understand, one, what that phrase means and what that entails. Holla, we want prenup. We want prenup. So a prenup is, a pre- is, an, is really a special kind of a contract between parties, two people who are going to get married. And its whole purpose is to articulate the manner in which they would like to deal with the assets that they have at the time of their marriage and the assets that they acquire during the course of their marriage and the type of support that they wish to give one another in the event that the marriage ends in a dissolution or a legal separation. And it is, you know, I guess in the simplest way to say it is it's intended to settle the dispute before it arises. Unfortunately, that the fact of the matter is that many prenuptial agreements don't end up doing exactly what they are intended to do. But the act of negotiating a prenuptial agreement, whether the parties are possessed of significant resources or not, does require one to consider some of the things that otherwise parties who are walking down the aisle are not going to think about. You know, I said a minute ago that some of the rights that are attendant to a marriage are those that are somewhat unwitting. Uh, You know, the accumulation of dividends, for example, in an investment account may not, it may not occur to anybody that their partner now can assert a marital interest in that money, even though that account has never been touched. I have a lot of clients who are very, very surprised by the the breadth of their uh, soon-to-be former spouse's rights upon a dissolution. And when prenuptial agreements, even the simplest prenuptial agreements are discussed, those things can be considered and intentionally 
dealt with rather than dealt with uh, just as an afterthought or by complete surprise. Something doesn't work out the way that you would think that it would. Helen, you're, you're taking all the fun and the joy out of this. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's well, I'm a divorce lawyer. What do you expect? <laughs> Bob, with your 51 years of marriage, you're bucking the national trend, uh, the unfortunate national trend of nearly half of all U.S. marriages ending in divorce. And I'm glad I've done it. I remember when I first sent my parents a letter saying, Nancy and I are going to get married. My father sent one back that said, well, congratulations, and so on and so forth. He said, you know, in all the years your mother and I have been married, we've never contemplated divorce. Murder a few times, <laughs> but never divorce. Well, I'm glad neither have come to fruition. <laughs> divorce has a very long history. It goes back hundreds of years. And, of course, uh, it's one of those things you can kind of lose your head over from time to time. So we've asked a retired judge and a retired law school dean to help us straighten out legalese and speak English to us. Former Chief Justice of the Missouri Supreme Court, Mike Wolf. Legalese. Divorce. Such a harsh sounding word. Early English law, where our American legal system comes from, divorce was impossible. King Henry VIII in the 16th century wanted to divorce his wife. The Catholic Church said no. And that, among other things, led him to break away from Rome. And there began the Church of England. You then could get a divorce, but you had to go to the church's court called the Chancery. That wasn't easy. In America, with separation of church and state, divorce still was difficult. In the colonies, American courts could grant divorces. So did legislatures. Eventually, states passed divorce laws, most of which were very restrictive, actually, and turned the matter over to the courts. In Missouri, for instance, you had to prove a reason or grounds. They included impotence, bigamy, adultery, desertion, conviction of a felony, habitual drunkenness, cruel or barbarous treatment. The list goes on, but you get the idea. Many years ago in another state, I had a legal aid client back in that era who had looked up the law. She wanted a divorce, and her grounds were that her husband was impotent. I said, no, I'm not interested in proving that. So we went with allegations of cruelty, which got her the divorce, and ultimately she was satisfied. Later in the 1970s, Missouri and many states adopted a kind of no-fault scheme. The question was not whose fault is it, but simply, is the marriage irretrievably broken? Fault, misbehavior, might still be considered in issues relating to child custody, or what we used to call alimony and we now call maintenance. The word divorce, however, has disappeared from our law, but of course, it hasn't disappeared from our movies, from our TV shows, and from our everyday conversation. But now in the law, we say dissolution, dissolution of marriage. It sounds kinder and gentler, doesn't it? Legalese. When I think of prenup, and I think other people probably think of this as well, isn't that something that's just really for those who are rich or have a lot of assets? And if I'm just working a job and, you know, living the American dream and looking forward to buying a house or owning a little bit of property, I don't really need a prenup, do I? I think that can be the exact time, to, the exact reason to have a prenup because, yes. I mean, assuming that you're going to be upward bound and, and life is going to be getting better and you're going to be accumulating things and you're going to be dealing with these issues on, on the front end. I mean, the only thing I would caution people about with prenuptial agreements is there can be a tendency for people to oversimplify sort of the process. They think they can like pull some form online and plug in some names and everybody signs it and then we're good. And what a lot of folks need to realize is to do a prenup, you've got to do it, but you've got to do it right. In other words, both parties need independent counsel. There's got to be a full and fair disclosure of the assets. There can't be coercion or undue duress being put on one party. In other words, pressure. And certainly the further away from the wedding date, uh, you get uh, the better as well. And so it's just, if, if parties are going to do a prenup, I think doing it when there's not a lot is great because, again, you're preempting problems on the front end um, and, you're, and you're coming to agreement in terms of how things are going to work in the future, which can, be, which can be good. But again, formalities have to be followed and it has to be done right. Otherwise, it can, I think kind of Helen alluded to some of this, which is, I mean, it can result in headaches in court later where parties are arguing over whether it's enforceable and, and what it means. And if that comes comes to fruition, it can actually, in some ways, complicate a divorce if it's not done well. How do you even ask your loved one about considering getting a prenup? I mean, it, 
isn't there a really good chance that that person then thinks that you're somehow implying that your marriage is destined to fail if you need a prenup? Are you betting on the losing side that that's going to happen rather than your marriage lasting? Or how do, how do you convince people or how can one individual in a relationship convince their loved one that a prenup is something that they should invest and take the time and <laughs> leave we the can't. romantic side aside for a little bit and and do this very logical prep work. Sometimes you can't consider, you can't convince the other partner to enter into those discussions. But I think, you know, there may be some very logical reasons for a person being unwilling to enter into such a discussion. But at the end of the day, unless both parties are willing to enter into the contract, you're not going to have an enforceable contract. (laughs) Some people choose not to get married. And perhaps those are people who choose just to live together and just to be together rather than negotiating the morass of a prenuptial agreement. But, you know, there are reasons other than the protection of property or the pre-planning, if you will, of the manner in which property and debt would be dealt with. You know, when you are somebody who may have children, either from a prior relationship or a prior marriage, you can also attempt to to deal with the manner in which your property might be handled to protect your children's uh, inheritance in some way. There, you know, it's not necessarily planning to fail. I often speak about it and look at it as a very respectful thing to do so that you have a pathway to treat each other with the same respect at the end of a marriage if it doesn't survive the way you both hope that it will as you are treating each other at the beginning of the marriage when you're aspiring to be partners for the rest of your life. Not everybody sees it that way, but preventing a fight and preventing the nastiness that can ensue in a, in a, a protracted, contested divorce is, is a good thing for both spouses for the most part. Yeah, and I would just add too. I think if you can, in terms of convincing people to you know, to do a prenuptial agreement, obviously as lawyers we can't convince people to do. It. I mean, clients come in and they're potentially interested in it. But I, I think when both parties stand to gain something from the prenuptial agreement, then there can be more of an incentive to do it. I think a lot of individuals just sort of envision one party with all the money and the other party having nothing. And you think, well, why would the person who have nothing stand anything to to gain by entering into prenuptial agreement? I think part of the art of of crafting a good agreement is giving them an incentive. I mean, they gain something from it. And that's kind of it. I think the heart of any contract is that, you know, both parties are benefiting in some way. And so I think drafting a prenup in that way, in a lot of ways, can can cause parties to want to enter. And to keep in mind as well, prenups can't deal with custody or child support issues. And so even with a prenuptial agreement, if individuals are having kids, um, you, you still have the custody and support issues out there. And I think that can be a surprise to some individuals because they think the prenup's going to cover everything. But in terms of the kids, you can't touch that with the prenuptial agreement. So you're really, you're just dealing with the property, you're dealing with the debt, conceivably attorney fees or and spousal maintenance issues could be addressed in a prenup, but, but the kid issues are still all sitting there. So it's not, you know, it's not, it doesn't just perfectly deal with every issue, even if done well. Would it be a good idea to dig out the prenup every five years or so and go through it and, and maybe do a post-nup? Agreement uh, of I some kind. Is that what it's called? A post-up? I don't know. I just, I don't know. What What's it? Amend- I mean, it'd be amendment. A post-up is well, you could call it a post-up, I guess. But I mean, it'd be an amendment to the prenuptial agreement. It, you know, what's interesting is uh, you get into the concept of what's called this term called unconscionability. So courts generally are going to enforce prenuptial agreements if all the formalities are met, and the agreement has to not be unconscionable. What what you see in a lot of case law throughout the country is this, which is unconscionable at the time it was entered into or unconscionable at the time that the court is enforcing the prenuptial agreement. And there's a, there's a lot of cases that have sort of developed throughout the country, which sort of accept this latter standard, which is okay. It was, I mean, unconscionable means it's fair in essence, it doesn't shock the conscience. It's not such a, a one-sided deal that, you know, it's just, it, it's just patently unfair. But where you have to be careful is that the prenup could be unconscionable at the time it was entered, but 20, 30 years later, facts and circumstances have changed so much that it's just no longer fair. And so, yeah, I think it, it definitely makes sense for parties to, to go back to an attorney and or, or attorneys and have it re-looked at to make sure that, the, you know, the term still makes sense today. 
Well, I never thought of Winston Churchill as a romantic, but he always said, <laughs> those who fail to plan are planning to fail. And I'm starting to think of that in a new light when it comes to prenups and marriage. <laughs> so you've been married eight years now. Is it time to review? <laughs> we didn't have a prenup. So now I'm thinking maybe we should take the time uh-huh. as we you know, live the American dream and see if a postnup is, is that an option if you decide in the middle of your marriage, well, we didn't think through this. We were caught up in a whirlwind of love and excitement after you're married. Can you set down and lay some ground rules or is it too late at that point? No, you can absolutely do it after you're married. You certainly need to, I think from a, from a lawyer standpoint, you, you do need to have some idea about what's going on in that relationship at the time of the, the interest arising. Because just like a prenup, it's going to have to meet certain procedural, you know, watermarks in order for a court to enforce it. It is a very special kind of contract. And because of the relationship between the partners, each is in a very unique position to potentially overreach, which is why these contracts are scrutinized and looked at very closely in terms of both substantive and procedural conscionability. But you can do it anytime. You know, I've I've actually had people who have been married for, you know, 10 years and they go, you know, we're perfectly happy, but our best friends just got divorced and they spent, you know, an obscene amount of money on getting divorced and we never want that to happen to us. And so we decided since we like each other right now, we'd like to plan this out, you know. I need to ask you about the responsibilities within the marriage. Once you get married, uh, am I responsible for making sure my wife has health insurance or life insurance, anything like that? Is she responsible for making sure that I'm insured and that that I name her as a beneficiary or that she named me as a beneficiary? Is, Is that included in any kind of a marriage agreement? It's not an implied responsibility. It's not something that's, um, you know, explicit. Certainly spouses owe each other a, a duty of support. But whether a person chooses to designate a spouse as a, as a beneficiary on a life insurance policy or not is really, those are decisions that are made within the marital unit without interference from the state in terms of it being a required marital duty so to speak the only thing i would add to that too is in the in the if, if a party is if parties are divorcing then you at that time you've got to maintain the insurance some some parties who are behaving badly will be tempted to you know cut off the payments for the insurance or take one spouse off of the other i mean that's that that's explicitly barred in missouri you can't do that you've got to maintain the status quo on any insurance but, but right helen's right in terms of when folks are just married and not contemplating divorce not in the midst of a divorce what happens if you fall in madly in love and are ready to get married to someone who is just lousy with credit and has a lot of debt? Does that mean that you're assuming your spouse's debt to his or her creditors? No, not in Missouri. Now, if we lived in a, in a community property state, that answer would be potentially different. But Missouri is not one of those states debt that is accumulated during the course of the marriage is debt over which the court will exercise its jurisdiction to apportion between the parties. But absent you making an affirmative step towards obligating yourself by contract to the creditor, just by virtue of getting married, you don't inherit, if you will, the obligations of your new spouse. Those consequences, though, that may follow the you know, acquisition of a whole lot of debt may certainly affect you. You know, if credit, if the bills aren't being paid in the way in which uh, the creditor wants them to be paid, they can certainly pursue that person and could obtain judgments that could have an effect on property that you co-own and create headaches for you as a person who is married to or otherwise involved in property ownership with that person. And Kirk, you mentioned just a little bit ago in divorces, the the term behaving badly. That never happens, by the way. So talking about that, I've always heard these terms that are out there, fault and no fault divorce. What are those and do both exist in Missouri or how does that work? Well, to get divorced in Missouri, uh, you, you don't have to show fault. The fact that uh, there's, I mean, all you have to show is irreconcilable differences between the parties. But where folks miss this is, so, I mean, you don't have to show fault. There are fault-based grounds for divorce, but to get divorced, you don't have to show fault. What a lot of individuals miss, though, is they think, okay, so you, you don't have to show fault, so fault is, is completely irrelevant. And what a lot of individuals still miss is that in terms of dividing property and debt, Missouri is an equitable distribution state, which means the court divides property and debt 
in, in a just manner when considering all the factors. And one of the factors is the conduct of the parties during the marriage. And then when you get into spousal maintenance, the court looks at various factors again that the judge has the ability to weigh. And, and one of the factors there is the conduct of the parties during the marriage. Now, in saying that, judges seem to, over time, take fault into consideration less and less. They normally look at it more where there's a financial impact on the marital estate in some way. But but I think individuals just sort of miss. They think, okay, so it's no fault divorce. We can do anything and everything. And, and the truth of the matter is fault can still sort of creep back in in terms of the final result of the case. Let me ask you about something that we kind of touched on a minute ago, and that's you, we talked about debts that you don't inherit when you get married. What about after the marriage when one of the spouses goes nuts on a credit card? Does the, does the other spouse have a responsibility to share that debt or to make sure that debt is paid off? I mean, that's the issue. And, 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 and truly, look, when two individuals get married, they become one person under the eyes of the law. And so it's a, it's a joint venture, if you will. So you know, a lot of individuals, to contrast, they think, uh, look, my paycheck is my paycheck, and my spouse has no interest in that paycheck. Well, wrong. You two are married, and any money you earn during marriage, it's part of the marital estate. It's marital property, and in a divorce, uh, the court has to divide that uh, under the factors, and, and it's the same thing with debt. So that, that's totally true, and so while debt being brought into the marriage doesn't automatically become the, the new spouse's debt, in other words, they're not responsible for it, it should show... Uh, an individual who's thinking of marrying that person that, well, wait a minute, the person I'm about to marry has a lot of debt. They run up a lot of debt before we got married. Maybe they'll do it afterwards. And if they do it afterwards and they're married, then then it becomes part of uh, the marital estate. And, and theoretically, uh, they could be responsible for that uh, in, in a divorce. And so in a prenup, you know, it still can be important to itemize out all the debt and indicate in terms of the premarital debt, who's getting what, but but it, it can be a bad omen. I think when you're about to marry somebody, if they've got a bunch of debt, because they did it before the marriage, they might do it afterwards. And yeah, it's part of the marital estate. So after you're married, having separate bank accounts doesn't count for anything. Well, I mean, I think that there are two kinds of responsibility that, that Kirk is sort of talking about. There's the contractual responsibility or your responsibility to the creditor. And that is that is dependent upon who's, in whose name the debt is owed. But then there's the responsibility in terms of the division of property and debt. I find most of the judges that I practice in front of try not to make one party responsible for the debts that are owed in the name solely of the other party if the if the estate can be equitably divided without doing so. However, the existence of significant debt owned by one party can have a substantial impact on the manner in which the property is divided upon divorce, so long as that debt was incurred at least arguably or plausibly for the benefit of the marriage. So having an awareness of your spouse's financial behavior is very helpful. Maintenance of separate bank accounts certainly doesn't further that end, but good communication can. Is it fair to say that the role of the law when it comes to either prenups or getting married or divorce is really more about fairness and just making sure that the parties involved are being treated? Um, I know, Kirk, you've use the phrase equitably, but fairly, that no one's being taken advantage of in this situation. Is that fair to say? I mean, I think that's somewhat true. Yeah, it's somewhat true. Obviously, there's these specific criteria under the law that the court's got to look at. I mean, so when you're looking at property and debt division, I mean, there's specific factors the court ha- has to look at and give deference to. But look, there's no, there's no question in a big general overall broad sense, a lot of the results of these cases can come down to a judge's perception of the parties and the way they've behaved mm-hmm. and the way they've acted. And, and, and that overall sort of viewpoint of the parties can, I think, in a lot of ways, I think, guide the judge when they're looking at the specific factors they're supposed to look at uh, in terms of resolving the case. And so, yeah, I think fairness and acting above board and, and being honorable and being honest with the court um, can go a long, long way in terms of the judge's overall perception of the case. And that can look, it can really spill over into everything property and debt division, spousal maintenance, custody, support. Judges have a lot of discretion, and and, uh, certainly I think most judges want to be fair, um, and parties can do a lot to to, to really help that by being cooperative and being above board throughout the process. 
if parties are cooperative, um, are there alternatives than going before a judge and going to, to trial? Or it, what about mediation? Or uh, does alternative dispute resolution work in this case? Or I know that you're a trained mediator. Kirk, can you tell us a little bit about how that might work in a, in a situation of divorce or dissolution of marriage? Sure. I mean, I think parties that could resolve their case outside of court through, through alternative dispute resolution should absolutely do it. I mean, the research out there is this, is that parties mm -hmm. who settle outside of court end up back in court less on motions to modify, motions for contempt. I mean, parties can then also get along. I mean, when people have kids, right, at some, at some point in time, there's going to be grandkids. Uh, there's going to be other big events like graduations where parties are going to have to attend together and and if parties are able to resolve it outside of court, right, they're going to be better apt to be able to do that. I mean, the only the only nuance, and I think the thing that people just have to be careful with is I think sometimes folks, you know, it just sounds great. We're going to settle outside of court. We're going to make this thing happen. But the devil's always in the details. And a lot of parties who conceptually mm -hmm. want to settle can get hung up on specific issues. And that's what results in a lot of cases going to trial that probably shouldn't. And I think keep in mind this, which is if parties were able to compromise to begin with, they might not be getting divorced in the first place, but truth be told, lots of parties go to mediation and whatnot and don't settle. One thing I'm a big proponent of, and I don't take too much time, is collaborative divorce, which is sort of mediation plus, where it's kind of both parties are trained mediators, but then you bring in a financial neutral to help with financial issues or a child custody specialist to help with custody issues, and then you have a divorce coach who comes in to help parties communicate better because some parties just don't communicate well. And so I'm a big proponent of collaborative divorce as well. But, um, you know, settlement tough for a lot of parties. A lot of parties not good at compromise. We can't go on together with suspicious minds. You know, I think that um, just to piggyback on that a little bit, you know, I the courtroom is really not the best place to resolve emotional disputes. And many, many times the, the difference between one party's opinion and the other party's opinion is, is really driven by emotion and isn't necessarily particularly related to the issue at hand. You know, I often look at the, the litigation process when it's done in the traditional way and the case culminates in a trial in front of a judge is that the judge is equipped with a sledgehammer and that's all he or she can use to effect an equitable distribution or to come up with a parenting plan that, that serves the best interests of the children. Whereas if the parties are well prepared to work through an alternative dis dispute resolution process, they can see the options as much more scalpel-like, and they can craft solutions to their disputes that are much more individualized and creative than that which is available to the judges. But I think many, many attorneys send their clients off to their mandatory mediation meeting with, without doing really any prep with them, and that begets an unsuccessful mediation very frequently, or the result of the mediation is so broad brush stroke type of result that it really doesn't settle the issues because the details really are the things that we have to pay attention to. And so I think making sure that, you know, parties who are going through divorce understand what is a reasonable result and the lens through which that they, they have to analyze options really is what would happen if the judge has to decide this case? It really doesn't come down to what do I want or what does he or she want on the other side. It's what, what's really possible and what's a good zone of settlement to be in. And I think once you empower people with the knowledge that they need to effectively work through an alternative dispute resolution process, whether it's with attorneys or without, it can be a lot more successful. Um, I think in particular with, with child custody cases, alternative dispute resolution or uh, in particular mediation, co-parenting counseling, working with professionals who understand developmentally appropriate parenting plans is the right way to go so long as there isn't an enormous disparity in bargaining power as between the two spouses. One other thing I would just say to piggyback on that too is if there's not an immediate need to file a case, from my experience, yep. alternative dispute resolution worked better when parties do mediation before filing because look, 
uh, oftentimes to reach a resolution, it requires multiple sessions and it requires a lot of work. A lot of parties naively think they're going to go into a court ordered mandatory mediation in a couple hours and miraculously come up with a, with a solution. And, and that, from my vantage point, ordinarily doesn't work, even though it's still worth trying. But where parties just say, wait a minute, okay, we're going to get divorced. So let's just take a couple months. Let's take a few months and let's go to mediation. Let's take our time and, and work out a solution that I've seen work much, much better. Agreed. I, I agree. And I think that also prevents sort of the knee jerk response of, well, I'm just going to tell the judge. I'm just going to go to court. When you don't have something pending, there is sort of a tacit incentive to find middle ground. As long as we're talking about judges, once you get into a courtroom in one of these cases, what is the judge's responsibility in a divorce case, with or without children? Obviously, you have to be caring and empathetic, and certainly most, most judges are, right? I mean, they realize that it's an enormous amount of responsibility they have and that the decisions they make can affect uh, individuals forever, really, right? And then for, and, and these decisions can affect multiple generations down the line. So, I mean, I think being caring, being empathetic, I think being humble, listening is vital. And then, obviously, you know, in terms of being a judge, knowing the law following the law, really doing due diligence in terms of understanding the nuances of family law, because it, it, it really, there's a, there's a lot of technical facets to family law. And, and I really uh, have a great deal of respect for the judges who really take the time. And then I think finally just taking the time to make great decisions. I think judges, you know, at the end of a trial, oftentimes take cases under advisement and they let the, the evidence sort of percolate and they think about it and they weigh it. And they go back and, and look at things and, and read reports and read statements. So I think I think judges who really take their time to make uh, great decisions, I think, do certainly great service to the to the parties that are in the courtroom. Family law is incredibly emotional. It's about the people we love and or hate at times. How what inspired each of you to practice law in this area um, and to take on both? you know, legal aspects of this, but I'm sure that it can be uh, emotional to help your clients, to have the empathy to help your clients through this process. Practicing family law is a, is a very, it's an interesting balance. You do have to have empathy for your clients, but you also have to maintain a very objective approach to the way in which you handle cases. You are the person who is there to give advice and to appropriately sympathize and to make the client feel heard. But our job at the end of the day is to manage expectations and to make sure that people understand the process that they're going through and what is reasonable, what is possible and help them navigate to the end. I think that, you know, getting in for me, getting into the practice of family law was not something that I did with um, a lot of intention. It was something that I did a little bit of, and I kind of liked it, and I enjoyed. I do still enjoy the 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 nuts and bolts of it. Um, I enjoy working with people on that sort of really close level. It's something that you don't always get to do in the other areas of law. It's a rough and tumble practice. You are expected to engage with both your client, the other side, the other attorney. Um, our judges do place quite a bit of responsibility on us to exhaust avenues of settlement, to really try via, you know, smart lawyering and being communicative with your client to get them to a place where they can reach reasonable settlements. While it is a very emotional practice, it is also the kind of practice that can deliver very happy people six months after the divorce is final. You know, they may be extremely unhappy and very hurt and very sad, but if they're able to reach a result that, that preserves their ability to proverbially be okay, you'll see them out in the community and they're doing great, you know, and they're happy and they've gotten past the place that they were once in, which is a huge reward, honestly. For me, I didn't, I didn't intend to be a family lawyer. It was sort of a great big accident how it came to <laughs> fruition. Yeah, I mean, I worked at a general practice firm where there's some lawyers and, and they, uh, yeah, everybody did something a little bit different. And, and the attorney at the firm who did family law was, was out on leave for a while. And so they said, Kirk, you're going to have to take these, take these family law cases. And uh, so, you know, I took the cases and I started doing them. And, and I guess I did an okay job because people kept referring other family law clients to me. <laughs> And uh, so I had more and more people getting referred to me. And so it was kind of one of those things where 
before I knew it, I was a family lawyer. <laughs> you know, those are, those are the cases I did. And so somewhere around graduated in 2000. So probably somewhere around, I don't know, five, five to six years out or something like that. If I'm remembering correctly, I kind of made the decision, well, this is what I do. This is what people are referring me. So I'm just going to do family law and just concentrate in this area. And so it really developed over time. But, you know, for me, I mean, a lot of it is there's some similarities in terms of what, you know, Helen says. And, and you know, it, just, it feels great when you're able to, to help a client and, and you're able to take them and they're in one place in their life. And oftentimes it's not a very good place for a lot of clients. It's, it's probably the lowest moment in their life. And you're able to help bring them to a place where they're, they're feeling better. They're able to move on with their lives and they have, and they have some hope. And so that, you know, that feels, I think, good. It feels satisfying as, as an attorney. And certainly as Helen says too, it's a great thing when you ever, you know, when you, you see some of these clients, I mean, I've got some of these clients who, you know, I did their divorce, you know, many years ago and, you know, you still talk and converse with these people and, and, uh, you know, they're doing good. And that, and that I think is, is a tremendous thing. And I just think, you know, lastly for me, one of the things I always want to be for clients is a voice for them. I don't want clients to feel like something has been left on the table. And so I always make a huge effort to really get to know my clients. You know, what are their goals? Uh, what are they really trying to accomplish after you break through all the emotions, you know, substantively, what, what are the goals? What are they trying to accomplish and, and what do they feel is important that they want to have brought to the court's attention. And so in being that client's voice, I always want clients to feel like, you know, whether the result is exactly what I wanted or something a little bit different at the end of the day, look, Kirk didn't leave anything on the table. He brought everything to light that I wanted to have brought to light. And he, and he explained it to the court in a way that really expressed you know, my feelings and, and my goals. And, and I think for a lot of clients, if they feel like that has taken place, even if the result isn't everything they wanted, they feel like they got a fair shake. And I think that's a huge role that we have as, a, as attorneys is to have clients feel like, you know, wasn't perfect, but look, at the end of the day, it was fair and uh, my interests were heard and taken into account. Before we wrap up this program, I, I need to ask you about a question that fits into my demographic here. We get into seniors, couples who've lost their spouses through divorce or death, and they decide, well, we want to be together. They might live together. They might get married. Is that an entirely different field of marriage law or, or, or considerations that people should give when they're both older, the kids are gone, um, and they're just there, they want to get together? But what are the, what are the challenges that they face because they're getting pensions by now and Social Security, perhaps. What are the what are the penalties they might pay, or what are the considerations they need to give to whether they just live together or whether they actually should get married? You know, I, th I think whether you're young or you're in your latter years of your life, I, I think that whether or not to get married really boils down to a very personal decision. I think, you know, certainly when you are towards your older years. You do have to think about how the person that you love would be supported and, and potentially make more intentional provision for that support. But that can be done in some respects, I suppose, with or without the, a marriage taking place. If you've got kids, you know, and you're going to get married, like we kind of talked about earlier, maybe a, a prenuptial agreement or an antenuptial agreement would be something that would be of use to protect your children's interest and your legacy. Competency issues do come up at times when you have much older people who are contemplating um, a marriage. I think families certainly start to get involved at that point, and adult children have lots of opinions about those things. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, because because of the nature of a marriage, it's, it's really up to the, the husband and wife or prospective husband and wife to decide if that's what they want to do or what they don't want to do. And then to, to consider the things that are important to them in terms of the aspect of rights that are required upon marriage and, and just deal with them. But they, I don't think that the body of issues that, that arise are particularly unique with an older population. I was thinking in terms of Social Security benefits and survivor mm. benefits and estates and things like that. Uh, you'd want to get together and try to figure out, are you going to win anything? Or are you going to lose anything financially by getting together as opposed to living separately or keeping your estate separate? Sure. I mean, it's, uh, you know, eligibility for various benefits may, may or may not be affected by, say, the income of a prospective spouse. Um, 
you know, Social Security benefits and the, the eligibility for those kinds of benefits may may change if you are, you know, if you're drawing upon a spouse's work record prior to the marriage, you know, those kinds of things may change. You know, certainly if you're the recipient of maintenance and you think and you go and get remarried, that can have a substantial impact. So, you know, there's there are the marriage can impact people of all ages, depending upon their their unique situation going into that situation. Yeah, and this is kind of a specific sort of subset niche in family law attorneys who practice in, in the area of gen- generically called elder law and estate planning. And so I think for a lot of individuals who are making these decisions, too, it can be useful to sit down with an estate planning attorney. And sometimes, you know, there can be, you know, issues, wills, trusts, things that need to be looked at. Maybe uh, durable powers of attorneys if people are going to be living together was kind of one of your original questions, yep. you know, too, if you want somebody to help look at health care decisions and then the social security and the, those other kinds of issues can be looked at as well. But right. It's sort of a subset niche of attorneys. There's a lot of great attorneys out there who do it, uh, practice in the area of elder law. And, uh, that's certainly, uh, I think a good source for a lot of individuals taking advice in this area. It's the time of year between Christmas and Valentine's day. All these proposals are taking place. People are saying yes to each other. They may be saying yes to the dress as well. What is the one piece of advice that you would give to that couple that's getting ready to be married? That's a really big question. (laughs) Oh, I think for me, I mean, the big, big things that people need to, you know, keep in mind. I've been married 11 years now. Um, I think communication is really important in any marriage, you know, communicating well. And obviously communicating oftentimes, right, you've got two ears and one mouth. And I think you try to operate in that ratio, not just a marriage, but any kind of relationship, things probably go a whole lot better. So, I mean, listen versus versus talking. But I think that communication piece it's just huge and vital in a marriage. And, and oftentimes when the communication breaks down, you know, the marriage falls apart. And this is, you know, people talk about affairs and people maybe engaging in behavior in the marriage, which isn't so good. From my vantage point in doing this 19 years, you know, usually the affairs and the bad behavior follow the communication breaking apart. It's not always the case, but it's it's rare that in a fantastic marriage where there's great communication, people engage in bad behavior. But when the communication goes and then, then folks can start looking in other directions and doing things maybe they really shouldn't be doing. So I think, I think communication is key. And then I think the other thing I would tell people is all storms pass. Um, I think any marriage, any relationship is going to have rough patches. It's going to have difficult times. But if, if individuals look at it as like a storm, right, I mean, uh, and, and, you know, storms go away, they come and maybe they're terrible at the time, but eventually they sweep out and the weather gets better. I think if folks look at their marriage in that way as well, um, they'll have a lot more success. I think a lot of individuals when the marriage is bad and it's not good at the moment, they'll like, engage in actions which are just sort of fatal to the marriage, which can result in, in really the marriage being, being irreconcilable because people do things that's just, just sort of beyond fixing and, and beyond repairing. So that would be two big tips I would would have as a, as a divorce lawyer for parties who are looking to avoid en- ending up in the family court. I th- yeah, I, I think communication is a huge piece. Um, you know, I think the other part that I think any person who's considering getting married should ask themselves is whether or not they believe that there is mutual respect between the two of them. Um, when there truly is respect between the parties at the beginning of that relationship, it does form a very strong basis for open and respectful communication, which is the foundation of the kind of partnership that can survive the storms that Kirk was talking about and can weather the more difficult times. Getting married seems easy. You know, the planning process can be a little bit stressful, but the actual marriage itself at the end of the day is a lifelong partnership. And if you wouldn't go into business with somebody that you are thinking about marrying for one reason or another, you know, the business of a marriage is one of the most important and longest lived partnerships anybody can ever enter into, basing it on true respect, good communication, honesty, and a willingness to accept the fact that it's not always going to be perfect is a good recipe for the likelihood of success and also get a prenup. 
Helen and Kirk, thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. This is fun. Yeah, thank you. Well, it's clear that there's so much to consider when it comes to love and marriage and divorce and family law. And here to help you understand that even further, we have a family law resource guide available at MissouriLawyersHelp.org. That's MissouriLawyersHelp.org. You know, when you got married and I got married, we were able to marry the person we wanted to marry. That's right. It hasn't always been the case, though. Very true. And uh, we have law that says that you have the right to marry the person you want to marry. And Tony Simons, the Citizenship Education Director at the Missouri Bar, is here to let us know about our rights and liberties per the Constitution when it comes to love and marriage. Let's say you've met your soulmate, someone who makes life special and meaningful, who has set your heart aflutter, who, in the immortal words from Jerry Maguire, completes you, someone you can't imagine going through life without and you want to get married. Is it possible that the Constitution could have any relevance to this magical, seemingly otherworldly romantic scenario? Actually, it does. In our constitutional system, the question of who will be allowed to marry belongs initially to the states. The Tenth Amendment to the Constitution is called the Reserve Clause, and it says that any power not given by the Constitution to the federal government is reserved to the states. One of the classic examples of the reserved powers of the states is the power to regulate the health, safety, and well-being of the people. Marriage is an example of this. Nowhere in the Constitution is the federal government given authority over marriage. Therefore, it is a power that belongs to the states. So far, so good. The states can regulate marriage. For example, they set a minimum age for people to get married. They specify who can perform a marriage. They require that the proper documentation be filed with the government. However, what happens if a state regulates marriage in a way that runs afoul of the United States Constitution? Anyone who has studied American history knows that occasionally states do things that violate the Constitution. Is it possible that the way a state regulates marriage could violate the Constitution? To answer that, let's return to the version of you that started this piece, the one who has met your soulmate and simply cannot live without this other person and seeks to get married. Do you have a constitutional right to get married? Okay, first of all, let's go ahead and acknowledge that nowhere in the Constitution will you see the words, People living in the United States of America have a constitutional right to enter marriage. However, what you will see in the Constitution, in the 14th Amendment, are the words, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. We call this the Due Process Clause. Certain parts of the Due Process Clause are self-explanatory. The state taking a life understood. The state taking property, also pretty clear. But liberty, what does liberty mean? What does it include? Most of the protections in the Bill of Rights have been interpreted to be included within liberty. However, the courts have not stopped there. The Supreme Court ruled on numerous occasions throughout the 20th century that the liberty protected by the Due Process Clause encompasses the right to make decisions regarding the intimate details of our own personal lives. As long as you're not harming another person, you have a 14th Amendment right to make decisions regarding whether to have children, family relationships, and child rearing. The action most frequently cited as being protected by liberty in the Due Process Clause is marriage. In Griswold versus Connecticut, the Supreme Court characterized marriage as a coming together for better or for worse, hopefully enduring, and intimate to the degree of being sacred. It is an association that promotes a way of life, a harmony in living, a bilateral loyalty. It is an association for as noble a purpose as any involved in our prior decisions.
And the choice to enter into this state of matrimony is one that is deeply, intensely, uniquely personal. It is the decision, according to the Supreme Court of the United States, that should be left to individuals exercising their liberty under the Constitution. Even though it is not found in the text of the Constitution, a long line of Supreme Court justices has recognized that the decision to marry is the epitome, the pinnacle of the right protected by the Due Process Clause. So, when you find that person who completes you, who brings joy and meaning to your life, move into that state of marriage comfortable in the knowledge that your choice is one that is constitutionally protected. Well, for the most part. Unless you lived in Virginia prior to 1967, and the person you loved was of a different race than you. In that situation, the legislature of the Commonwealth of Virginia had stated that marriage between different races was a crime. The courts of Virginia upheld this law, citing the state's justifiable preservation of racial integrity and the prevention of the corruption of blood, a mongrel breed of citizens, and the obliteration of racial pride. To its credit, the United States Supreme Court stepped in, unanimously reversing the Virginia courts and striking down as unconstitutional the law enacted by the Virginia legislature. In the landmark case of Loving versus Virginia, Chief Justice Earl Warren wrote, the 14th Amendment requires that the freedom of choice to marry not be restricted by invidious racial discrimination. Under our Constitution, the freedom to marry or not marry a person of another race resides with the individual and cannot be infringed by the state. A more recent decision of the Supreme Court concerns state laws that restricted marriage to the union of a man and a woman. In Obergefell versus Hodges, the United States Supreme Court in a five to four decision, ruled that the 14th Amendment protected the rights of same-sex couples to marry. Justice Anthony Kennedy, writing for the court, stated, no union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than once they were. As some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. So, does the Constitution protect your right to choose to enter into marriage? It's probably safe to answer yes, for the most part. At this point, the 14th Amendment protects the decision of more people to marry than at any time in our history. However, like most matters of constitutional law, it is a constantly evolving tale. Justice Anthony Kennedy, the author of the opinion in Obergefell, retired from the court this summer. Whether there are still five votes on the court to support this position remains to be seen. Regardless of what happens, it should serve as a reminder to all of us that the Constitution and the manner in which it is interpreted and applied has relevance for us all. Nothing further, Your Honor. You've been listening to Is It Legal 2? A regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Thanks for being with us.